As the leading admissions management system and CRM for over 700 of the world's top international and independent schools, Open Apply supports every step of the applicant and family journey, from discovery through to inquiry, admissions and enrollment. We want to share a free recording of our recent webinar on managing transitions, in which our guest, Laura Schupfer, former director of the Community Relations and Head of Admissions at the International School of Zug and Lucerne, joined us in exploring how to make transitions easier for students, parents, and staff. You can access this recording by visiting the link bit.ly OA transitions, pronounced bit.ly forward slash OA transitions. Looking beyond transitions at the wider admissions journey, we would like to invite you to register for our upcoming webinar on professionalizing admissions. If you'd like to maximize efficiency and user experience, while promptly and proactively meeting the demands of your admissions and marketing team, as well as the high expectation of families and parents, join us on December the 13th at 9am GMT, that's London time, by registering the link uh, bit.ly forward slash OA admissions. That's bit.ly forward slash OA admissions. Last but not least, if you'd like to find out where your school's admissions process ranks compared to best practice schools and receive free recommendations on any areas for improvement, we highly recommend you check out our free new admissions benchmarking tool by visiting bit.ly OA benchmark, pronounced bit.ly forward slash OA benchmark. Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your co-host, John, and really happy to be back again. Uh, Dan is still on the road, and I'll have uh, be doing this interview with our two guests. One of the things that I think when we're international school educators, we have the uh, luxury and privilege to work with a huge array of different type of students from different cultures, from different backgrounds, from different countries but also from different learning capacities and different learning approaches. And those learning approaches are very unique and they're things that we have to celebrate and support. But sometimes those learning challenges, difficulties, whatever you want to call them, and that's why I invited our two guests today to kind of help us navigate the right terms and what is really the way to uh, engage with this topic. Some people call it uh, you know, the learning support group, You've heard in the past learning disabilities, which really is not something that we want to do. When I was at LA Unified, it was known as exceptional students, and there's a gamut of different, but it's the children that often come into a classroom and maybe need to learn with different strategies, have different approaches, engage and register information through different means than maybe your average student in the class. That does not mean they're no less important. And often these children come with exceptional uh, perspectives and exceptional ways of doing that. And today I really have uh, two world-class guests, Ochin and Kristen from New Frontiers. And I'm just gonna straight away turn over to Ochin to introduce herself and then Kristen, and then I think the one thing, Ochin, we talked about before we were on air is kind of set the scene, kind of the history of this very important uh, part of any educational institution and uh, pedagogy. And then we'll go into the details and unpack some of the things that I know some people have reached out to us to ask you. So 
Ochen and Kristen, thank you so much. I know how busy you are. You're in all different parts of the world. So uh, over to you and so look forward to this conversation. Uh, thanks very much, John. I'm Ochen Kasuma Powell, and I'm one of the founding members of the Next Frontier Inclusion. And uh, Kristen is a co-founder with me. And I'll let you say a little bit about yourself first before I say a little bit more about NFI. Okay, great. I'm happy to be here today. I have been spent many years as a director of support services and international at the International School of Brussels. And, um, and it's where really the next frontier inclusion began as that we recognize the need of many international schools reaching out um, to, to ask, how do, we, how do we do this? How do we be more inclusive of students who, who learn differently? So we were, we were pleased to be able to, to share what, we're, what we continue to learn. So we came together as a really small group of four founding members because we said, you know, why are we always turning to North America? We actually have expertise in international schools and we can learn from each other. And also contextually, there were some things that were going on in the United States that didn't quite fit in our international schools context. And so that's really how it began. We are a not-for-profit group and we support schools at a systems level in serving children, all children really. And when we first started out, we're, we really reflected, I think, what the historical um, development was I think that because international schools began by and large after World War II as a way of supporting expatriate families overseas, they were seen primarily as college preparatory institutions, organizations. And for whatever reason, we didn't think that we could be both excellent academically and equitable simultaneously. And so there was this large divide, which also reflected the movement that was going on in the United States. And it was, it was either you were this or you were a special needs school. And we thought, well, actually we can do both. We can serve all students. We can serve a wide range of students. Kristen, do you want to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we, we learned early on was that even when schools were saying um, we're we're not set up for this, we we don't maybe don't even accept students who have learning needs. In fact, they, they did have students with learning needs in their in their midst because it's a it's a, a normal human phenomenon that that children learn in different ways, and so we can expect that in the population there would be somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent of students who learn learn in some in some different way. And uh, to take that one step further, what we also learned was that uh, we learned from parents who were coming out of the United States, particularly U.S. diplomats, because they, in many cases, served as catalysts for the work that we did. You know, they came out and they were saying they were telling us things like, you have, you're not doing enough. Well, we heard from parents coming out of Fairfax County, Virginia, which as you may know, is the poster school district for special education that's always brought out. And, and we're told outside the United States, this is where you should look for, you know, what is best practice. And we have had parents coming to us saying, 
please don't tell me you can't serve my child because what you do in international schools is more than my child was getting in Fairfax County, Virginia. So there was a point at which we understood, actually, we do know a lot more about our context. We do know a lot more about how to serve kids in our environment. And, and so initially when we started, I would say that we started very much um, as a mirror or a reflection of what was going on in the United States. And it was very much of a medical model. We call it a medical model now. Kristen, do you want to uh, say something about that? Yeah, sure. It's, um, it's thinking about here, here we are as a school, and this is what we offer. This is what we offer as a school. And when students experience some kind of challenge, then we offer this additional set of services that they, that they can access. And so, and that was organized around, as Ocean mentioned, a, a medical model. So there was a, there's an identification process, there's um, some steps that, that schools would go through and then provide this additional service. And it was seen very much as additional service. And, and because of that, this kind of silo um, evolved, e evolved around it. And the model now is, is really shifting to um, more multi-tiered systems of support that, that aren't, shouldn't be considered the service delivery of for students who learn differently. It, they should be considered as the, the, who we are as a school, that these are the approaches for all learners. Um, because one thing that certainly we've learned is that by, by working the, the teaching and learning better uh, for for all of the students. I think that's what's really, if I can just interject, I think that's a really important theme that you're both bringing up is this idea that we're serving all children because in that process, the some of the strategies that you bring to the table actually benefit every child, even though they're coming in with different learning uh, approaches. So for me, that's really an interesting point and how that has developed with an attitude of all children. Uh, uh, yes. And one of the huge differences from the medical model uh, to what we're trying to do now is that the medical model was pretty much based on deficit thinking. What's wrong with a child that we can go out and fix and then send them back to the classroom? Only we found that kids very rarely went back in. And so I think that our approach now is much more asset-based. We're looking at what are the strengths that this child can offer us? And how can we work with those strengths in order to leverage areas that may not be so strong? So I think that our whole thinking has shifted. Not everybody's thinking has shifted, but certainly this is where we'd like to see the field in, interna in inclusive international schools going so and it's, sorry, you, go yeah, ahead I was say there are many anecdotes when uh talking to educators around the world that have had that experience of the deficit model i went through the swiss school system i'm dyslexic and have attention deficit disorder so it was either i was the back of the classroom or the front of the classroom and usually it was what was wrong with you and so i think for a lot of people my generation we were products of that approach and when I and one of the things that I feel very uh, 
focused on and, and really one of my drivers is to make sure that never happens when I see kids in my room. And I love the word that you say, what are the assets that they're bringing to us? And I think that is such a powerful message to a child where maybe even they've come, as you were just saying, Ochin, they come from an environment where maybe that deficit model is still quite apparent. And that can be very empowering when a child suddenly realizes, oh, I didn't realize that I have an asset. So thank you for really explaining that so clearly. Well, let's take a quote from Ned Hallowell. And I can't remember the name of the book, but I love how he describes children with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder. He just says, you know, they have Ferrari brains with Volkswagen brakes. <laughs> and I, I just think that that capitalizes on what kids do well. And that's yeah. really where yeah. we should be looking. Yeah. What, and I think and interrupt you just because as we go, we're, we'll come back as we go deeper. One thing I do want to address is the labels because there are many labels out there. And I want to make sure that we, as us three, having that conversation, and I think for International Schools podcast, we want to tell our audience, these are the terms that now we should be working with, because sometimes the words you use also have an impact on top of the actions you might engage with. So there was this term learning disability, learning challenge, learning support. Uh, LA Unified, we had exceptional children. Maybe if you don't mind, both of you, just kind of unpack that and tell us what, what are the terms, or maybe we shouldn't even be using terms. Well, Kristen yeah. has yeah. quite a lot to say about that. <laughs> we, right? Yeah, yeah, labels are for jam jars for sure. And I think it, it in some ways really connects up to the conversation we were just having about the, the old medical model and and some of that some of that terminology and and it's not it's not to say that we don't need to know students really well it's not to say that we should stop identifying um, these kind of neurological differences that that people have we we need to understand that about how how um, children learn how people learn and and it's about in our own mindsets. Um, making sure that the that that we're focusing on those assets, and that the the label doesn't define doesn't define the person. So one of the one of the big kind of rules of thumb, and there's some controversy around around this also a little bit, but is that um, is that you use person first language. So uh, naming the person first and not the disability first, um, if you need to name the disability, and um, and that and that's really helpful. Um, it puts the identity on the person and not on the not on the disability. What we're hearing in response to that from certain certain communities within um, within the groups of people with disabilities is that they some of them don't think that's right. The autistic community has spoken up loudly to say, "I'm autistic, and it's part of my identity. It's it's who I am." And I don't have a problem with being called autistic. And if you have a problem with it, then it's then it's kind of that's your own thinking about it. And the deaf community is saying is saying similar things. So they don't want to be not deaf. They it is their culture. They it's they embrace it. And and how how other people 
um, think about that, it was al it's almost insulting to them to, to say the person who's deaf. So person first would be um, so-and-so with ADHD rather than that ADHD child. Yeah, and, and I, I right. think that's just, yeah. And in an international school context, I think that's a very small fix that can have a huge impact is mm -hmm. starting child because there is mm -hmm. definitely the labels do fly around and i think sometimes mm -hmm. some educators when they have those children they feel if they throw the label that's almost like a card for them not to deal with the issue and i'm being very provocative here yeah mm -hmm. i i don't i don't think it's it's uh, so much provocative i i think that what you're um you're you're actually um making reference to the environment as well. Because if you, if you have language that is understood by everyone and used in the same way, then it's okay. If everybody understands and, and agrees that this is how we're gonna use that language. Because as you've probably guessed, the language and the vocabulary is evolving. As the field evolves, the language also has to evolve. It's when there is a misalignment between what is welcoming in the environment and the language that we use, then yes, you're right, it can be absolutely destructive. Yeah. Ochen, tell us a bit about the evolution because this is a field that obviously has grown. When I was a child in the local Swiss school system, there might've been people do it, but definitely on my radar, there was one teacher, and I'm not sure they were always equipped uh, with the pedagogic approaches. Maybe give us a quick little, you know, overview. How did this all start, and you know, where are we today? Because you said you're uh, highlighting this change in this evolve all evolving uh, field. Well, I think both Kristen and I can speak to that. It it actually has to do with seeing this as a departmental issue you know, the special ed department or the special needs department to moving towards a systems level uh, reorganization. And it's the difference between um, saying that uh, we're working on inclusion. Well, you can't do that through a single department. It really has to be an organizational approach. Kristen, you want to add to, to that? Yeah, I think that some of the really important work happens at the at the top level in the in the design, and in the the beliefs and and values of the school, and and making sure at the very top level that curriculum is accessible, that language is is um, is unified, that there's a that there are common beliefs that that people that people are following, and it's built into every every system in in the school. So it's not here's the Here's what the school does, and then there's what we do for for these kids. I also I also think that our concept of what is success, how do we define success for a child, is very rigid. Sometimes, you know, we say here are the standards, and the kids need to meet these standards, instead of saying what might success look like for this child. You know, given where he's come in. And yes, we have these academic standards. We're not going to say goodbye to them. But what specifically would success look like for this child? You know, sometimes, especially over the last um, 
two years. I would say that since the murder of George Floyd, we've had a very strong impetus in international schools on work on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we have had teachers say to us, we've got the academic inclusion down. Now let's do the rest of it. And I think it's actually very powerful that we are paying attention to what might be implicit uh, bias and racism within our international schools. Um, I don't think that we have academic inclusion down. And the reason I say that is because we have parents who say to us, yes, you, would admit, you admitted my child into this school. Yes, you put my child on a plan, but you know what? My child e eats alone at lunch. My child doesn't have any friends. So don't think that we've got that inclusion bit right. And I think that's, a, again, something that we keep having to move on. I think that's an important point you bring up about this uh, whole movement towards diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, because I think the inclusion part is also celebrating the diversity of learning approaches and learning challenges. And I think somehow that's, and, and I'm sure we'll get some feedback on this. I feel it's kind of like, oh, it's it's done. And I think your point's an important one. It's not done. And from you know the anecdotes that you're sharing is the parent uh, feedback. What's really interesting you're both saying is that it has to be a systems approach. So that means you're talking about engaging with leadership teams and uh, decision makers that are kind of curating and scaffolding the experience of children and teachers and the institution based on standards and benchmarks that they might have adopted, be it IB, whatever it might be. Tell me a bit when you approach a school that is not thinking of this systems wide, what are some of the reactions? What might be some of the ahas or what might be like, hold on here, we're maybe not ready. I'm curious because that's a very different approach. It's a very, it's an approach that really guarantees if it's system wide, you are going to make it not based on personality or the amazing teacher, but it's ingrained in the system. So whoever leaves and comes in, that system is there to ensure that continues. So thank you for the question. Schools have cultures and they can be either accidental or they can be by design. Even if you have a well-established culture, you can be deliberate about shifting that culture. I think one area where you will see a huge difference is when we ask the question in schools, as we often do, what do you see as the purpose of your learning support department or your learning support program? And by and large, uh, sometimes schools don't have an answer. Sometimes schools say um, that they are actually to catch up with the academic work. And we see it very differently. We don't see the purpose of special ed uh, programs or learning support programs, I think is probably a, a, a wider or, or a, a softer term to use. Uh, we don't see curricular catching up as the purpose. Kristen, do you, would you like to see, uh, speak to that? Yeah, we, we see it's still, um, still today a struggle and the closer kids get to, to kind of higher stakes testing at the secondary school, the more you see the push for kind of content support um, for learners. And really the, the purpose of support services should be to help to, to teach 
students to um, have good metacognitive knowledge to learn so they learn who they are as a learner, what works for them, and to help them find their voice of self-advocacy, of, of agency. Because at the end of the day, the end of their years with us in secondary school, they're gonna have to go out and, and, and figure out how to, how to do it without us. So sometimes that kind of over-support can be, can be every, every bit as dangerous as, as under-support. So if, if you if you want to just um, say, what do we see as the purpose? We can say yeah, very self-advocacy, agency, metacognition, and critical thinking. Those four things, which are, you know, they're all tied together. And quite often, kids who are in support service programs will be able to tell you more clearly than kids who are not in support services what they need in order to learn well. Because they had to fight for it. So they know we see this as the purpose. And yes, please use the curriculum as your avenue to teaching those skills. But Absolutely. those we've also learned. Sorry, John. Yeah, I was just going to say those four skills that you highlighted are such critical skills when you go into the real world. I mean, we all know as adults. Those are the ones we're tapping into. I am not doing anything with my history exam, uh, you know. Uh, so I, 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 like, I thank you for saying that because I think those metacognition, the critical thinking, the kind of self-advocacy and all those things are so important for students. You talk about curriculum catch-up. Do you think that sometimes because parents feel, oh, I need my kid to pass the exam. So if he can't make the main class, let's put him in this other class and get him to pass the exam or get her to pass the exam. So the catch up is partly pressure from parents and also mm -hmm. societal pressure or kind of, you know, the system is really you have to pass the exams to get to university and then university. So how much do you think that plays into it and how do you counter that? Kristen, would you like to? Yeah, that? yeah, it, it definitely, it definitely is a factor in um, both of the the understanding of what what support services um, sh should be, and and the reality that they're that they're getting closer, and everyone wants everyone wants the same thing. They want kids to succeed, and if they think that's the pathway to success, then that'll be the thing that that they'll push on. I think there's there's more flexibility in that in in that kind of thinking, and even even thinking about content when when kids are younger, and the content actually in the younger years is often um, in lives lives in skill development. So if you take a, a first or second grader, for example, they're learning they're learning to read, they're learning those core literacy skills, and we know that kids with language based learning disorders like dyslexia have a um, will will require a certain kind of intervention in order to learn those reading skills that's going to be that's going to be different so in, in some ways that is the content for, for younger kids but when it turns into the the big conceptual um, pieces in secondary school that's that's where you see uh, much of that that pressure happening and I, I think it's also the teachers and the parents' experiences with any sort of special programs in the past. You know, when they went to school, uh, this was the type of support. If they had support, it was the kind of support that they got, curricular support. 
but I'm not sure that curricular support will teach you the skills to become an independent learner. And really, that's, that's where we're at. So, so on the one hand, when we're looking at a micro level, we're looking at the, those skills to become independent learners. When we're looking at the macro level, we see this as seated within an inclusive environment. It's not only kids with special educational needs who need to learn those skills. Everybody needs them. And that's why our focus is on the broad rather than the narrow. And yes, of course, uh, that's why we would do a, a, a tiered system of support so, because not everybody needs everything. But when we talk about an inclusive environment, then, uh, and here I'm drawing on the work that Kendall Zoller and I are doing, and how do you, how do you do, go about defining that? And our definition for what is inclusion is the extent to which you feel known, loved, safe, and successful. And by success, we mean, to what extent can you find meaning in the work that you're doing. And we find this entirely scalable, whether you are talking about the, the food service handlers, the school psychologist, you know, somebody who's uh, doing the admin work, teachers, parents, and particularly students. So this addresses what that parent asked us. Um, you know, she says, so my child doesn't have any friends. Why aren't you paying attention to that? And, and so it has to be seated within an inclusive environment. So the micro is the skill of independent learning, skills required for independent learning. The macro is to have it within an inclusive environment where you do feel known, loved, safe, and successful. Yeah. And, and I think, John, it brings that connects back to the question that you asked earlier about it, when when schools are are wondering how um, how to how to look at it at the at the design level, I think I think there are more and more schools recognizing that having ha having this you know, come in an integrated wa uh, way and really be embedded in in the whole culture of the school and their ways of approaching the learning of all students is is why so many school international schools now are looking. To this more dynamic, flexible, um, multi-tiered system of support, because it is it is that top design level. Can you break it, down it, about the multi-tiered uh, system? And Ochen, you talked about in that multi-tiered, you don't all not everybody has to be part of every tier, but different tiers for different profiles. Can you talk to us a bit about what that might look like, a kind of a concrete example for people that might not be familiar with this multi-tiered approach that you're highlighting? Uh, Kristen? Yeah, I think so. One of the, there, there are a few main uh, reasons to, to do this. One is to do a multi-tiered system. Uh, one is that it is integrated from, from the very top. Typically, there are, there are three tiers. Um, the first and biggest tier, tier is, is tier one, and that is really high quality differentiated instruction for all, for all students at the, in the school. Tier two um, offers short term um, interventions that are delivered with fidelity and really progress monitored 
um, for, for any student who needs it. it. There's not a whole identification process that, that, that kids will go through um, in the same way as special education has always done it. And with hopefully the idea is that after an intervention or two, they, they will um, they'll return to that differentiated, um, fully differentiated place. And tier three is for students who might need longer, might need longer term or even doesn't even have to be longer term. It can be something more intensive for a shorter term. And this is this is how it's really different from uh, the, the medical model that that we used to run because it's kids students will move flexibly and dynamically through the tiers it's not like you're identified and then you're in this and you're in this for for life which is which is what we see in that in that medical model they get what they need when they need it and and um and as soon as they can access with um with really high quality differentiated instruction then they, they don't receive service at that level, um, at that tier level anymore. So it really is, it's a breaking of the thinking of the, the medical model. And I think one of the biggest challenges for schools making the transition is, is to make sure that they, that they really re-envision the whole thing and that they don't try to just reattach the degrees of needs that the kids uh, have at, at certain levels and, and reattach them to these new tiers, it, it shouldn't work that way. So we're, we're actually being very disruptive to, to current systems. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if the implications are, uh, are there that we would be disrupting the system. And um, be, because you know that systems are emergent, they take on characteristics of the environment and whatever variables come to play or are added into when they're added and to what degree. And so we're, it, it's so much easier according to systems theory, right? It's so much easier to actually just take everything apart, dismantle it instead of trying to tweak it, which is what I think that many schools are getting caught up in right now, trying to tweak the system and, and it's not it's not fitting very very well, but going back to your your request for uh, a concrete example, um, in the past I've been a teacher of writing, you know some students all, already came into my eighth grade class knowing how to write well. They were structured, they were organized, they knew what a thesis statement and a topic sentence were, so they might not need the kind of teaching that other kids needed who didn't know how to string together a paragraph. And you wouldn't teach everybody all the same thing. It would be based on what they need. But that approach then uh, for teachers is very different because you do have a lot of educators that like kind of the vanilla, you know, I've got a template, it works for, it works for the average <clears throat> and my scores are really good. Yeah. How do you respond to that? Yes, and, and you know, we do actually get that. And one of the things that I say, and, and you know, having been a high school teacher and an IB diploma teacher in the past, uh, I would say, and, and can you imagine just even how much better your scores would be 
<laughs> you differentiated that instruction and yeah. allowed the kids to go further. Yeah. 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 And, and I you, and I think it's every school that I'm working with working with on this topic right now is coming coming around to the kind of realization that the investment really is in that tier one and and in that um, you know there's so many things that you that you can do already in tier one that provides access to a whole range of kids so they don't need to do something extra they 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 can access it in their own right independently when that is really well designed, when tier one is really well designed. You were talking about Ocean and Kristen, this tweaking. So you come in and the approach that you have is a systems approach with these three tiers. And it's really looking at a holistic whole school approach, looking at the systems, not only for one department, but everybody as a school, the way you structure that kind of the philosophical and pedagogic engines that are pushing this through. But then you mentioned that a lot of schools are trying to tweak it. Why are they trying to tweak? And what happens when you tweak? Instead of going, as you said, throw everything out and let's just go systems, redesign. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say that one of the reasons why is because even though we speak a common language, English, uh, we actually mean different things. And a multi-tiered system of support requires collaboration between adults. And we use the word collaboration, we bandy it about, but actually when you go to one school and another, the word is being used differently. In one school that Kristen and I went to, the word collaboration was used uh, when the um, the general ed teacher wrote out the lesson plan and sent it to the special ed teacher and said, could you just please go and, org and differentiate the instruction for the kids who need it? Uh, they never actually met to speak about what did you mean by, you know, this big idea or this essential question and what will kids need? So they never actually met. So you have that as one extreme and you have another extreme where, where people are, are actually meeting together because they, they co-create co the unit plans and, and they go in and everybody owns all of the kids together. So, so it's a very wide range. And when schools say, to teachers, you have to co collaborate. It actually requires professional learning because the skills of collaboration, and we know that that research has been done, that collaboration between adults uh, leads to enhanced student learning and enhanced um, scores on, on tests. Mm -hmm. But collaboration itself doesn't come naturally to most of us. And so when I when we use the word tweak, it's because it's it's such an unknown. Like, yeah. um, we know it's good practice, you need to collaborate, but actually there's a skill set that comes with collaborating. Mm -hmm. There's also particular skill sets that that's a, it's a huge point, Ocean. I think it's a really important one. And one of the strengths of collaboration is when people have different skill sets and come together to work on it. And I think one of the reluctant, one, 
reluctance might be that when we say break it, maybe people are thinking, throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that is not, that is not exactly what we mean. What, you know, we, there, we've learned an awful lot in the field and the brain research keeps going and going. And we know that there are specific things that students with specific neurodevelopmental um, needs, neurodiversity needs will require. So bringing, bringing that together, holding, keeping learning about that and, and the, bringing the expertise in and learning, um, learning from, our, from our colleagues in regular education about how, how we can design that together to make it better for everyone. Now, you work in many different international schools around the world. International schools have changed. There are the traditional, what I would say, the expat, anglophone international school, but there are many international schools in different countries that are opening and local populations are taking advantage of that pedagogic, the IB, be it a, a UK curriculum or whatever. Every culture very likely has a different perception and perspective of this matter. How have you found, are you discovering when you travel in Asia, maybe in, in Africa or South America or other parts of the world, that they're different approaches, or is there kind of a, a growing global understanding this holistic system-wide tiered approach is really what is the most impactful? Are other educators and researchers that you're working with in different cultures or different schools responding to that as well? I would say, Kristen, um, you, you, can, you can say if I'm wrong. I would say that people understand globally that MTSS is a way to go. I would also say that people don't know what it means. And MTSS is this a tiered program, correct, Ojin? The term it's, not, it's not only that it's tiered, but that there is a multiplicity of services that are also offered so that anyone can access it. I, I know that some schools charge for any sort of learning support. And so parents feel uh, very put upon, like how long does my child need to do this? And, um, uh, and you have others where as a matter of um, the way the school was designed, of course they get occupational therapy. Of course they get speech and language. In some schools, they don't. It's just a dream that they might have access to it. So, so you know, different environments and also a lack of a common understanding. And that's why we're working so hard on these monographs um, that say, here, here's another special topic for uh, inclusion, inclusive international schools. Uh, we did one recently on co-teaching. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Because many schools will say that they co-teach and yet it's actually, you see one uh, main teacher and then you see an assistant and kids know straight away that the assistant has lower status. And we know the research on kids with low status, they have, uh, Elizabeth Cohen did that research years and years ago, decades ago, that low status kids get less access to materials. They have less access to teacher time 
they learn less. The wow. research that hasn't been done is what is the effect of low status teachers and low status programs on the learning of students. We haven't done that yet. We started to many years ago, and that's something that still needs to be done. But, but I think that there's a corollary there, that if you, have, if, if you have two teachers and one is obviously the main teacher and the other one is obviously the assistant, and then you pair the assistant with a child who's struggling, you're sending a huge message to everybody in that class. It's really interesting because often that is the case. Many schools, especially in primary, will have assistants. And in some cultural contexts, there's even, you know, there you'll have the uh, Caucasian main teacher and the local hire being the assistant teacher. And that is almost mm -hmm. all layered in the different messages that are coming through uh, with mm -hmm. that topic. So that's really very interesting. You, mm -hmm. you both have... Uh, highlighted that, you know, you talked about co-teaching and that collaboration, how different people engage with it. Are you finding that uh, educators, there are different generations. So when you go to schools, you have teachers that maybe got their degree 20, 30 years ago, people that got them four or five years ago. Is there a change in the way, the attitude? Because all these universities, these education programs, there are a lot of international school education programs. Are they generating, helping that change in the awareness, or is this something still? Kristen. Yeah, I think, I think there is more of a, of a focus on collaboration. And when you're, co-teaching is not particularly a new topic. It's, it's been around, it's been around for a while. So I think I certainly see people from all degrees of experience um, embracing um, the idea when the structures are set up um, in order for them to, to succeed with that collaboration, which means teaching them about collaboration, which means um, having, a, having a set of agreements that they have about how, how the work is shared and, and um, that there is co-equal status, there is parity that's developed. So I... I, it's been more and more my experience that that teachers have have been been willing and even been asking um, to to do this work together because they know they learn from each other, um, and the, and their students will do better as a result of that collaborative work. You know, I think that a very strong force in international schools, one that has a lot of influence, is accreditation. And I remember the time when there was no uh, section for, for support services, for learning support services in accreditation protocols. And now there's and more and more schools. We know that that's the, that that's the uh, seal of good housekeeping for a school, right? You want to send your child to a school that has been accredited by a, a, a good agency. They have a lot of pull, a lot of influence in international schools. As soon as the accrediting agencies came out and said, you know what, guys, differentiation is really important. And what was that about 20 years ago that they came out and said that? Then it got schools, international schools, to take a look at it. So I, I would see that, that um, they are very, very helpful when someone within or people 
say, this is really important. Uh, then we see schools starting to change. And that, you, you know, that um, Fullen says that bottom-up change will never, almost never gets off the ground. Top-down gets a lot of pushback. You need both. And so I, I see that the accrediting agencies really do have a lot of top-down influence that I think um, perhaps those are the people we need to be reaching out to. Yeah, and I think, you know, accreditation agencies for a lot of schools, if you think a lot of the new schools coming out in different countries, that is a mark, that's like a label, and it's, it's an affirmation of their programs being of a certain standard, and parents are savvy enough to want that. I mean, we live in a world of labels and ratings, mm -hmm. so that's going to be really an important component. You obviously, you know, you're, you're working... Uh, you also do a lot of workshops. I think it'd be interesting to hear of some of the things that you do in the summer. I know you do workshops, you work with organizations. Talk to us about some of the opportunities you provide to educators. If they're listening to this and they're thinking, wow, I really want to learn more about this. It'd be great to do some PD. Of course, that happens within the context of the schools that you're working with, but also uh, tell us a bit about what you offer to educators. Kristen. Yeah. So um, over the over the years, it uh, there's been quite a bit of demand for the differentiated differentiated instruction or that kind of universal design for learning, um, and that's that's an ongoing uh, topic that I think will can be revisited for 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 a long time. It's we we continue to learn from that. Um, certainly, the work of collaboration through co-teaching and 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 doing that kind of work. Um, I have done work with, a, um, with schools on behavior and developing kind of pro-social pro um, um, cultures of behavior in a school and learning how to, to listen and respond to behaviors um, because that comes up as a, as a challenge for school. Um, Ochin and I both engage in um, kind of audits or reviews of support services to help them have have a look at the practices that they're using and and make some make some recommendations for for moving forward. Um, so it it and often the work is bespoke. So in in most cases for me when a when a school reaches out, I spend some time getting to know them and finding out what what it is that they that they need, and um, and we we figure it out together and then and then offer offer what's gonna support them most. The next frontier inclusion, pre-COVID, we've not started up again. Pre-COVID, we would offer uh, workshops based on any new monograph that we published. So when we did one, uh, when we published a book on, on working with behavioral issues in international schools, we also designed a workshop around that to introduce the monograph and sort of uh, try to help people to be develop a level of consistency around how they they work with kids with um, behavioral issues. So we we have done that. Um, I actually do a lot of work in the area of collaboration. I work with the adaptive schools um, framework, and I do a lot of work teaching cognitive coaching because I think that one of the you know, an area of interest for me 
that has come up through this work is how do you go about according status to people so that they feel like they have a seat at the table. And this has to do with being known, loved, safe, and successful. Because what we have noticed is that unless people feel like they have a voice that can be recognized, they will not contribute. So an area of interest has been, how do we, how do we go about making sure that people feel invited? In other words, it's not enough to issue the invitation. People must feel invited. And one of the things that, that um, I've learned along the way has to do with how we listen to individuals. And, uh, and this is both verbally as well as non-verbally. How do we respond to them? Because um, that's one of the key areas, I think, in terms, it's foundational for building trust in an organization. It's foundational for um, developing status within another. It's foundational to so many things. So uh, coaching is one way that I approach that. Wow, thank you. Uh, one thing is, let's imagine we have a school reaches out. You have a very new leadership team that comes to the school. What are some of the things that you've, and they've reached out to you, what are some of the kind of initial areas you want to en them to engage with in the process of starting to work with you? What would maybe some things that you would want leaders around the world that are listening to this, and if they're thinking, wow, it'd be really good to have the support and the coaching from both of you. What are some of the questions? What, what do you want them to be doing to make sure that they engage with this? Kristen, would you like to address that? Mm. Yes, there's, there's a lot, there are several things that come to mind. The, the one that comes first is to, to have a conversation uh, or try to understand what, or help them develop, what is their identity as a school? Because we know that the identity will be the, the driver for, um, for um, what they pay attention to and, and, and the approaches that they use and will result in the outcome. So being really clear about the, the identity um, their identity as a school and what's important to them. Um, it help, helps to know where, um, where, we, where they want to go. And if, if that's a question that they have about themselves, then it's often a very good place to, to start. And, and, yeah, uh, working at the level of identity, I think is one way of, of shifting culture at a systems level. Uh, because as Kristen said, who you believe you are really influences um, how you define your work, what you pay attention to, your relationships both within your organization or your team and external to it, and how you go about making decisions. So, so identity is, is an important one. And I think that um, I... I like to listen very carefully to what heads of school, what school leaders consider to be really important to them. And it gives us 
gives us a starting point for uh, talking about why that might be and how it's prioritized and then how that's connected to the learning and the supporting of learning in their schools. And, and it, it takes that the the, talk, the conversation about identity, of course, is at at um, um, you know very a very top level, and it it's the piece that really can can be so transformative um, for for schools. And it's not to say that kind of more more technical aspects of of the work that needs to be done don't need to be addressed. It needs there needs to be both this adaptive. Um, piece and and the technical piece in order in order for it to um, in order for it to function well, I, it's it's often the case that schools will request some some very technical aspect of what to what to do for a support services program and and we I would bring the conversation back around to what are what are, where's the identity of the school and how's that developing and as a guide. Thank you. It's just been so rich and so amazing to have this conversation. And I'm really hoping that this is also given people an opportunity to understand. I, you know, you talked about the medical approach and now this more multi-tiered open, uh, you know, I, I feel it's such more empathetic and inclusive and it's every child is part of that journey. And I think that's a really important message that you've shared today. Thank you both for your time. I just want to remind people, Ochin and Kristen have put a whole bunch of great articles. Ochin has done a lot of work and published, and both of them have. So do go to the show notes, and uh, you can definitely find a lot there. And I know, I'm sure if you reach out to them, they will be happy to uh, talk to you. And that's, of course, uh, you can at New Frontiers Inclusion. Uh, is the organization. So pop over, look at them up. Uh, fantastic work. Ochin and Kristen, thank you so much. And thank you for all the work that you're doing in schools. I know that I've been in schools where you have come by and it's always been a very positive change and it always has been a privilege to watch that happen and be part of that. So thank you both. And uh, we'll talk to each other at some time soon as things develop.